We'll be reading and looking together at verses 1 through 11. But before reading God's word, let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, we acknowledge our need. Our need for your redeeming work. Our need for the work of your spirit to enable us to be attentive, even this night, to your word. Anytime we read, anytime we study it, any understanding or insight that we have comes from you alone. And so we acknowledge our dependence upon you. We acknowledge our need even to be alert uh, this night to your eternal word of truth. And we ask, O Holy Spirit, that we would see ever more clearly the work of our Savior, his redeeming work, his glory here captured for us in the pages of Scripture. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone who serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, just by way of introduction, I think it's worth noting where this event fits in the public ministry of Jesus. We read in verse 1 here of chapter 2 that this is on the third day. On the third day, Jesus and his disciples are invited to attend this wedding in Cana. Now, we could ask, the third day since when? Well, if we were to back up a little bit in chapter 1, we would see that it's the third day since Jesus called Nathanael to himself. Now, this is the only place in John's gospel where he tracks days in this particular manner. And so there's obvious significance. And so if we look back to chapter 1, verse 19, this is where John starts this record keeping. This is day 1. So by the time we get to the wedding feast in Cana... It's now the seventh day in this sequence of events. And so in these opening chapters of John's gospel, we have these events in the course of one consecutive week. And the activity of that one consecutive week culminates in this miracle of new wine on day seven. Now, the significance of this is that Jesus, in his earthly ministry... In his atoning work upon the cross is bringing about a new creation, a new beginning. Paul says this much clearly in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has gone, the new has come. The eternal Son of God not only creates at the beginning of time, but now as he has come in flesh... 
He is ushering in a new creation through his redemptive work. So that's the significance of John's record-keeping of the passing of days here in this chapter, in these opening two chapters. Jesus is the beginning of a new created order, and all who look to him in faith have life in his name. And so let's see on the seventh day when he performs this miraculous sign, let's see how Jesus begins to bring about this new creation. In this new created order, let's consider first tonight the significance of miraculous signs, the significance of signs in John's gospel. Now, collectively, the gospels together record some 35 miracles performed by Jesus. Now, we know that each of the gospel writers are selective in the things that they choose to record. And so, of course, Jesus could have performed more miracles than these. But of those 35 that we know about, John records seven of them. And notice in verse 11 what John calls the miracle of turning water into wine. He calls it a sign. And what do signs by their very nature do? Well, they point, of course, to something else. Signs are not the reality, but signs point to the reality. So imagine if you were on vacation with your family up in North Carolina... And you're on your way to a beautiful picnic, a picnic ground, something that you've read about in little magazines and you've even done some research online to look at the beautiful sort of idyllic setting of picnic tables with a waterfall in the background. And as you're driving down the road and you see the exit sign for that picnic ground, you don't pull over to the side of the road, get your blanket out, tell your kids to grab their picnic lunch and set up lunch there at the sign. That's the sign, of course, pointing to the reality. Now, the miracles of Jesus are very significant. We'll see tonight that these miracles teach us a great deal about his person and his work. But if they are signs, well, that means that we're not simply to marvel at their power. But we are meant to look beyond the miraculous signs to see something else. Now, this is why the Pharisees and the religious leaders fail to see Jesus as the Messiah they fail to look beyond the sign to see the reality. They fail to see the substance of who Christ is. They completely miss the identity and mission of Jesus. This is why every time they engage Jesus in conversation, what do they ask? They ask, show us more signs. Show us by what authority you have the right to do such things. Give us a sign. And they clamor for more miraculous events because they set themselves in positions of authority. They want to be the ones to determine what they do or don't do with those signs. Now, Jesus, of course, does not accommodate them because they are envisioning themselves sitting in judgment over him instead of submitting to him. Now, there's another person in Scripture who who performs signs confirming his identity, and that person was Moses. In Exodus chapters 3 and 4, if you'll turn there with me. In Exodus 3 and 4, we read of the dialogue between Moses and the Lord from the burning bush. And in the course of this conversation in chapter 3, God tells Moses that he is to be the one who will be the voice of God before the people... And the voice of God before Pharaoh demanding the release of the people from slavery. And upon hearing this news, Moses, of course, is not too enthusiastic at first. 
about fulfilling that calling of the Lord. Listen to how he replies. This is in chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. And so the intent of these signs is to confirm Moses as the role of covenant mediator. And notice that the Lord gives these signs to Moses to confirm to himself that he is the one appointed by God to be the spokesman, spokesman before Pharaoh, but also to confirm to the people that Moses is the appointed leader and mediator. And so the children of Israel, you see, are to look to these signs to recognize that they are being called out of the darkness of Egypt into the light of God's grace to be a new people with a new identity in their God. Now, John, here in chapter 2, wants us to see that Jesus is the promised covenant mediator who performs signs to testify to his role as mediator. And just as the people of old were to follow Moses, the covenant mediator, so now we are to follow this greater than Moses, this final covenant mediator. And we are to follow him to deliverance. And not deliverance from an oppressive people group, but we are to follow him into deliverance from our sin and rebellion. And so signs point beyond themselves. Signs, in the case of Jesus' ministry, authenticate his role as covenant mediator and deliverer. But the signs do even more than this. As John tells us in verse 11, the sign of water to wine manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You see, the miracles of Jesus are never just raw displays of power. But as signs, they point to the glory of Jesus Christ so that the result would be belief in him. Again, the religious leaders asked for signs so that they could sit in their positions of authority and determine for themselves what those signs meant. But what we see here in John's commentary of verse 11 is that there is an objective goal of these signs of Jesus. Signs performed for a specific intent, a revelation of his glory that they might believe in him. So what does it mean to talk about Jesus' glory? What is his glory? You might recall John's words in the prologue, chapter 1, verse 14. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And now we have the first recorded incident of the disciples seeing this glory. Glory through this miraculous sign. 
Now, His glory is His splendor. It's His radiance. It's His power. It's His majesty. His glory is the manifestation of His being, the revelation of His character and His mission. Now, a Jewish reader coming to John's gospel in chapter 2, when hearing these words, glory, the glory of God, he would immediately think of Exodus chapter 33. In that chapter, Moses asks to see the glory of God. Show me your glory. And God responds by saying, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But you cannot see my face and live. And what the Lord is doing in Exodus 33 is he is equating his glory with his goodness. He is equating his glory with his mercy, equating his glory with his compassion. The glory of God reveals who he is. If we see his glory, then we see his nature. We see his character. We see his person. In the same way, in John chapter 2, this sign, which reveals the glory of Christ, shows us who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what our response ought to be. We could put it very simply like this, that the person and work of Christ is revealed in this sign. I think it's appropriate to reverently ask the question, why this particular miraculous sign? Of all of the things that Jesus could have done for his first miracle, why this one? Now, we know that nothing in the life of Jesus happens by accident. Everything is purposeful. And if he can do all things, if he can make the blind see, if he can make the mute talk, if he can make the deaf hear, if he can even raise the dead to life, if he can do all things that are much more, humanly speaking, spectacular in nature, then why water to wine? If Jesus' goal is to put on a display of power, well, there are many more fantastic things that he could have done. And who are the ones who know that he turned water into wine? It's only the disciples and servants. It's not even a public display of power in the open for everyone to see, for everyone to marvel at. And what's the worst thing that could happen if they run out of wine? Well... The wedding celebration is cut short. Now, there could actually be a potential lawsuit against the groom. That's actually not beyond the realm of possibility at this time of history. But in light of someone being unable to to walk or to see, this doesn't seem like a big deal. So obviously, there's much more going on here in Jesus' miracle than just giving some people some really good wine, arguably the best wine that has ever existed in creation, if God is the one who is creating it. So if this miracle is a sign, and if a sign points to his glory, and if glory is the revelation of his person and work, then what do we learn about his person and work through this sign? Well, that leads us to our second point. How is the glory of Christ revealed in this text? What is it about his nature and character that is revealed from this miraculous sign? What is he teaching us about his person and work? How is his glory being revealed? Well, first, he shows himself to be Lord of the feast. Now, let's look for a moment at this person, this master of the banquet that we find in verse 9. Now, the master of the banquet is like the master of ceremonies. We don't really have an equivalent of him today 
it would be sort of a compilation of the wedding coordinator, the MC, the person who is the caterer at the wedding that makes sure that everything is put together in the right fashion. This is the master of the banquet. We even read of the custom to supply the best wine first and then replace it with the more watered-down, cheaper wine once everyone's palate has been dulled. Now think of all of the weddings that you have been to. The better the food and drink and atmosphere, the longer you stay and celebrate with the bride and groom. Now wedding feasts in the ancient Near East were to last a long time, even up to a week. And the whole community would be involved helping to host such an event. So without enough food and drink, there's no incentive to stay. It would reflect poorly upon not only the family whose son is being married, but upon the community. It would be a shameful indictment of the family and their inability to provide. And so Jesus steps in as the true master of the banquet, the true Lord of the feast, the true provider where others fail. Now throughout the Bible, blessing and prosperity are things that are oftentimes equated with festivities. When there is peace in the land and the people are living in harmony with themselves and with their surrounding neighbors, there is plenty of food and drink to go around. And that just makes sense. If we live in times of peace, then we have time to give our attention to the harvest. If it's a time of war, then the men are away fighting and they don't have opportunity to give such attention to the crops. They would not be as plentiful. And there would certainly not be a huge wedding feast in the midst of wartime and conflict. And so anything that might be celebratory in nature would have been put on hold in such times of unrest. Feasting, however, comes in times of peace, times of blessing. And the children of Israel actually had scheduled on their annual calendar feast times. And those feast times were opportunities for them to give thanks to the Lord. They would thank the Lord for His provision, not only to thank Him for providing such food and sustenance for them, but to remind them that they had peace with God. And if they have peace with God, then they are enabled, you see, to celebrate. And it would be an opportunity for them in those feast times to thank him for his provision of a substitutionary sacrifice. And so the picture that the Bible gives us of our heavenly dwelling place is that it is a place of harmony, blessing, and peace in which there is feasting and dining with one another. In heaven, there is no more conflict, no more division, no more wars. But the peace and harmony found there lends itself to this feast-like setting for all of eternity. And it's the Lord Jesus in his substitutionary work that enables us to have this cosmic and eternal peace with God. He is the true provider. He is the master of the banquet the Lord of the feast, who will one day usher his people into that heavenly banquet feast. Think just this morning of the opportunity we had to participate together in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, in many ways, among other things, it's a foretaste of this banquet that lies ahead for God's people. Why is it that we have just a bit of bread and a small cup? Because it's a foretaste of that which lies ahead for those who are in the Lord Jesus that great heavenly banquet feast that awaits us. And it's so important that we participate in that sacrament throughout this earthly life 
being mindful that it is the Lord through his kindness and grace that continues to nourish and nurture his people on toward that end. That it's his persevering grace that is seen in visible form in that sacrament that works in the lives of his people, bringing us home to that great day. But even more than that, Jesus shows himself to be the true bridegroom. Now, back then, at this time of history, in this culture, it was the bridegroom or the groom who was responsible to provide for the wedding celebration. It's kind of the opposite today, where the bride's family provides everything. Back then, it would not be quite the financial hardship as it would today to have to pay for six weddings. (laughs) But instead, you would have been on the receiving end of that financial responsibility. And so the family of the groom would be responsible to provide everything. And we see his responsibility in verse 10. When the master of the feast calls the groom aside and commends him for saving the best wine until now. And so where the bridegroom fails to perform his responsibility, Jesus intervenes, showing himself to be the true bridegroom. Read in Matthew chapter 9, verse 15, Jesus says there, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? Jesus is the bridegroom. And we read as much in John's later book, Revelation. In Revelation chapter 19, in verse 6 and 7, we read these words. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And you see, it's through the finished work of our faithful Savior that we are made the bride of Christ, that the church is clothed in the radiant splendor of his righteousness. We are made ready for that great day, for that consummation, for that wedding, through his glorious work. We are enabled to come to the wedding feast of the Lamb because the true bridegroom, the sacrificial Lamb, has secured our place through his substitutionary work. And so Jesus is the true Lord of the feast. He is the true bridegroom. And third, he shows himself to be the one who truly cleanses. Turning water into wine is a picture of what he must do to provide cleansing and purification from sin. You see, where does Jesus get the water that is transformed into wine? Well, it's from the jars that are used for ceremonial washing. As the people went into the presence of God, they had to wash themselves in this ritual with water from these stone jars. It signifies our need for cleansing the need for cleansing to come into the presence of God. He is holy. We are defiled. And there must be some sort of purification in order to enter into his presence. And so here's the water, the method of purification under the old covenant. It's turned into wine, a picture not only of this heavenly feast, but a picture of the shed blood of Christ on our behalf in order to give us life. Here is a picture of the old order passing away, being replaced by the new finished work of our Savior. And so this, you see, is what he came to do. Replace the old method of cleansing with his very own blood. 
a perfect sacrifice. A sacrifice that cleanses definitively once and for all with the end result being union with him and peace with God. And so this you see as his glory, the master of the banquet, the one who truly provides for our greatest of needs, the bridegroom of his church, the one who cleanses. But how does Jesus accomplish all of this? How does he fulfill his role as true Lord of the feast, the true and final bridegroom, the one who cleanses? Well, he accomplishes all of this. His glory is ultimately revealed in his hour of suffering. Look again at verse 4. When Mary comes to Jesus and tells him that they have run out of wine, he replies, Dear woman, why do you involve me? What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now here in this statement of Jesus, we really have the key to the whole passage. This seems at first glance like such a strange thing for Jesus to say to Mary, his mother. What exactly is he getting at? Well, woman is in no way a derogatory or a disrespectful word to use. It's not as harsh as it comes across in our English translations. A better translation would be, dear woman. But even then, it's not as intimate as we might expect. And Jesus calls here, dear woman, calls her this because he is now entering into this phase of public ministry. This is the purpose for which he came. Everything else in life, including this familial relationship of mother and son, must now be subordinated to this divine mission. He is not any longer to be seen as the son of Mary, but as the Messiah who has come to redeem us from our sins. His gaze is set and fixed upon this purpose for which he came, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. As I was thinking about this passage, I couldn't help but wonder, what does Mary expect? When she comes to Jesus, what do you think she really wants him to do? When she comes saying that they have run out of wine, I don't think that she was asking for a miracle. I think what, it, what happened here was far beyond what she came to ask him about. Remember, he hasn't performed a miracle yet. Now, Mary knew that he was a great man. She knew that there was something very special about him. And now he has these disciples who are following him. But she probably just wanted him to get up and speak and take charge. Maybe send some of his disciples into town for some more wine. Something that he could do to fix the problem. But it's very doubtful that she expected him to do what he did. And his response to her, telling her that his hour has not yet come, does not mean that she's just asking too early in the day. She needs to wait until it's a more appropriate time for wine to be consumed. That's not what he's saying. But rather the use of hour in this context refers to the time appointed. The time that God has set. And the fulfillment of this hour comes later in John's gospel. We read in chapter 13, just before Jesus humbles himself and bows at the feet of the disciples to wash their feet, we read in chapter 13 that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. You see, if Jesus is the true master of the banquet, the true provider, the faithful bridegroom, the one who can cleanse from our sins, the way that he accomplishes this 
is through his hour of suffering. The hour that Jesus is referring to here, the hour that he alludes to it throughout John's gospel is the hour of his death. The time in which he will be lifted up upon the cross as a substitute for sinners. The hour in which he will rise again from the dead and ascend into heaven and sit at the right hand of his Father in heaven. The only way to produce wine for his wedding feast, the only way for him to bring his bride to himself is to go through the hour of his suffering. He has to die to provide wine at that great feast. He has to die for that great feast to become a reality for us. He must die in order for us, the bride, to be made ready. And he must die in order to cleanse us from our sins. As much as his glory is revealed here in John 2, and his disciples believe in him, his glory will be revealed in full through his suffering, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus also fulfills his role of provider and bridegroom and one who offers cleansing in his work of imputation. You see, the work of Christ becomes ours as we do two things. Admit that you are empty and take all the credit. You see, you must admit that you have nothing, that you are completely out, that you are morally and spiritually bankrupt, that you have nothing to bring to the feast. Nothing to offer God. Just as those who were supposed to provide for the needs of the people have nothing to offer, so too we have nothing to bring to the Lord that makes us commendable. And in this narrative, the ones who fail to adequately provide for the guests are the ones who get all the credit. And this, I think, is a tremendous picture of imputation. The failures of the bridegroom and the master of the ceremonies are laid upon Jesus. And he provides in abundance what they lack. And they come away looking like local heroes. They are the ones who get credit for his miraculous provision. And no doubt people went away talking about how great this wedding was. This, this which was about to be an absolute disaster, has now become the standard by which all other weddings in the region are measured against. Don't you think they were talking about this wedding for generations to come? Wow, if only we could repeat the wedding of Cana in Galilee. This is the gospel. Admitting that you have nothing and taking credit for the work of Christ. The imputation of our sins upon him as he becomes a curse for us. The imputation of his righteousness upon us as we are clothed in his radiance. So what should our response be to this text? Well, one response is seen in verse 5 in the words of Mary. Do whatever he tells you. Shouldn't this be our response to the word of God at all times? Do whatever he tells you. I was listening to a podcast earlier this week by a church historian. who was talking about the visit of the Pope to America. And he was talking about all of the inherent problems with the papacy and how there is simply no historical record that can be put together to support the notion of a perpetual line of papal fathers all the way back to Peter in Rome. But the Roman Catholic Church simply dismisses that historical problem because of their theological belief in the inherent authority of the church. 
In the Roman Catholic system, there is to be implicit faith in the church, an absolute submission to the church, even at the expense of rationality. Ignatius of Loyola went so far as to say, if the church tells me that black is white and white is black, I will believe it. But for us, you see, there ought to be an implicit faith in the holy word of God. It is not irrational to believe in the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, but we have a completely reasonable faith. Mary, at this point in the public ministry of Jesus, has yet to see in fullness what Jesus would do to save us from our sins, but she knows enough about him already to say, don't even ask, just do it. Is your response this devoted? Is your response to the word of God this resolute? Are you willing to do whatever he tells you to live in this kind of submission to God's word of truth? Well, what else should our response be? Identify with the lowly. Jesus chooses a relatively obscure place in a rural community for this to be his first miracle. And who are the only ones who know what Jesus did? Who are the ones who are privileged to witness this amazing provision? Who are the ones who saw and by seeing put their faith in him? Well, it's only the servants who knew. Only the disciples knew. And isn't this God's pattern throughout Scripture? The lowly and the weak in the eyes of the world are the recipients of grace to show us just that, that it is all of grace. And it is only by grace that we are saved. And only those who humble themselves before him, only those who see their true condition for what it is, will see their need for grace and mercy. The beautiful paradox of the incarnation is that our Savior came from the most majestic heights of the heavenly throne room, from the eternal dwelling place of the triune God, and he humbles himself to come to this insignificant place in this lowly village to make his glory manifest to simple, unknown servants and disciples. And the charge here to us is humble yourself. See your need for his grace. Lay aside your pride. See the glorious one who laid aside such glory for you and come. And that shows us what our third response ought to be. We see it in the disciples in verse 11. Put your faith in him. The disciples, in seeing this miracle, responded by putting their faith in Jesus. This is the whole reason why John writes this gospel account. Over and again throughout this gospel narrative, we are to put our faith in Christ. He presses the reader over and over again, chapter after chapter, believe in him. John is passionate about pointing the reader to the Savior. Believe in him, and by believing in him, you might have life in his name. And this is a response that we ought to never tire of having. We never move beyond this being our greatest need. Look to him in faith. May every heart here bow in humble submission to the glorious bridegroom. May our response this night and always be one of faith and repentance, believing in his name, that those who believe might have life in him. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your glorious work of redemption. 
how much we learn about your ministry in this earth as we study the gospel narratives. As we see there, the Lord of glory who humbled himself, who became a substitute for sinners, who fulfilled that role of glorious bridegroom, who clothes his bride in his radiant garments of righteousness, who cleanses us from all of our sins. May our response be one of worship and delight, praise and adoration, faith in our Lord, crucified, risen, ascended on high. In whose name we pray, amen.